Welcome to the Sozo Church Podcast. Our desire is to see every person know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Enjoy. What's going on? How are you? You doing all right? No? Okay. Like three over here, you're doing just fine. Uh, let me, let me kind of calibrate you a little bit before we jump into the message. Um, I, I am not coming to stir up your emotions. I feel like I'm on assignment to encourage your soul. And there's a big difference. All right. So you, you may be a hoot, holler, amen, shout me down. At one time somebody said, shoot another, another one in that hole, pasta. I, whatever you say, that, that's fine. But listen. Rather than your emotions be stirred, if I walk off this stage in a half an hour and the spirit of God did not reach into your soul and do something, then I've screwed up, okay? So I just want to calibrate you kind of what to expect, all right? It is an honor to be here. Uh, I have more respect for you. You don't know who I am and that's okay. I know who you are and I have a ton of respect for what you're doing. And the burden I feel is to help you see what you're doing. The, the stats would say that in this season of a church that the bulk of those who attend are considered the core of the church, okay? That's abnormal. For, for the vast majority of this church to be the core, that's a very special thing. This is a very special season. But here's the problem when we're starting something new. In the first two years of a church plant, you may not know this, but over 75% of churches who start, they never make it to their two-year anniversary. Step back and chew on that for a moment. You're about to have your two-year anniversary. So let me just, let me, let me submit this to you all. You should have the biggest party this church has ever had before, okay? And by the end of this message, you're gonna understand why it's going to be so important to celebrate, all right? It's not just about fun. It's a lot bigger than that, all right? So before I give you point number one, let me just tell you, all right? The title of this message is, Can You See It? Can you see it? The first two points of this message are going to mess with you, okay? I guarantee you, I don't even have to ask, I guarantee you, you've never had a guest speaker come in and have point number one and point number two, okay? Some of you are gonna find it incredibly offensive, all right? So I hope you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, understand what that is communicating to the God of the universe. I don't think you're gonna say anything in the next half hour, okay? So if you don't have something to write with, reach into the purse of the person sitting next to you, whether you know them or not, grab some lipstick if you have to and write, okay? Because God wants to speak to you, all right? Here is point number one. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write it down twice, okay? Point number one, you're all crazy. You're all crazy. You have done lost your minds. And I mean that as the ultimate compliment. I, I want you just to think through scripturally how many crazy asks God makes of incredible men and women in the very beginning of their story in scripture. Think about how many crazy, think about Noah. Noah was an old man and God said, hey, I have an idea. I need you to build a boat. Well, it's not even raining. Like we're, we're far away from the lake. Like why do I need to build a boat? Just trust me. 
I'm going to bring rain. And it didn't rain and didn't rain and didn't rain. All the while he's building this boat. They mocked him. They made fun of him. Why? Because he looked crazy. Truth be told, Noah was crazy. He was. And you know, you know one of the things that was most crazy about Noah? I don't know if you've ever really paid attention to this in Noah's story. God gives Noah the blueprint for the ark. And if you read through it, verse by verse, there is something missing in the blueprint that is crazy. Do you know what it is? A steering wheel. The ark didn't have a steering wheel. Now think about it. If God told you to build a boat and you got to the part where pretty much everything was finished and you're looking around like, okay, did we get everything done? And you look and you go, there's no steering wheel. At one of your sarcastic sons who helped you build the boat would probably pipe up and go, uh, I think we missed something, right? No, no, no. Here's what you have to understand about being crazy. Crazy people don't have steering wheels in their cars. Here's why. Here's what God was saying to Noah and is saying to any of you who fall into the crazy category. I'm not giving you a blueprint that involves a steering wheel for two reasons. You have no idea where I'm taking you. And furthermore, even if you knew where I was taking you, you don't know how to get there. So if you'll just build what I tell you to build in crazy fashion, I will make sure you get where I want you to go. It's really simple. Okay, think about this. Abraham. The patriarch of every believer. The physical patriarch on the earth of every believer. God says, hey, I got an idea. Let's kill your son, the son of the promise. That's crazy talk. God says, hey, kill him. It's crazy. What does he do? The Bible says the very next morning, he got up early. And he took Isaac to the top of the mountain. And he holds the, the sword that he's going to thrust in Isaac's chest up in the air. And what happens? The angel of the Lord says, stop, for now I know you're crazy. <laughs> so the angel says, right? For now I know you fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is one of the greatest evidences of a crazy follower of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be afraid of the Lord? No, that's not the fear of the Lord. Fear means reverence and awe. It's the Hebrew word yirah, yirah, reverence and awe. A crazy person, that's who you are. You've lost your mind. Think about this. When God wants to do something crazy, who does he look for? Crazy people. <laughs> Take it as a compliment. And I don't know if you know this, but you need to remember this, that you are in really good company. <laughs> Let me show it to you scripturally. I, I, I bet most of you haven't noticed this before in scripture. Mark chapter three, verse 20. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his, Christ's family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away and listen to what they say. He's out of his mind. Jesus' own earthly family looks at what he's doing and they say, get him out of here, he's lost his mind. Listen, here's my personal belief, that too many of us are craving comfort rather than embracing crazy. Amen. If I am looking for comfort, I can always find it. 
always. But here's what you have to know. If you're going to walk out this thing called your calling, you will never be able to do it from a place of comfort. It's gonna be one of the most uncomfortable things you ever do in your life. Why? Because your calling is so much bigger than you can wrap your mind around. And you literally have to be crazy to pull it off. Look around, you people are crazy. You've lost your minds. And it's the best thing that could have happened. If you were sane, you'd have quit by now. You would have. If Jason and Jim were sane, they'd have already quit. But they're crazier than all y'all put together. Think about it. Why does somebody who has more than 1,200 students in his youth ministry in one of the three biggest churches in America leave all of that comfort and seek out, not just any city, this one? Because he's crazy. He's lost his mind. So some of y'all look at him every once in a while like, I think he's crazy. You just paid him the ultimate compliment in the kingdom. Because crazy is a prerequisite for your calling. You're all crazy. Here's point number two. If point number one didn't offend you, point number two is certainly going to offend you. You all look like idiots. You don't even realize this. You all look like idiots. Again, a compliment. Noah looked like an idiot building that boat when there was no rain, right? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Preston, I, I vaguely remember there's a scripture that says, don't call your brother Raka fool. Okay, listen, I didn't say you're all idiots. I said you're all crazy. But point number two was you look like fools. Not you are a fool. Okay, think about this. The one person God points at in scripture and says, that's a man after my own heart. Think about this. He finally gets the ark again and he's bringing it back home. And he can't, he's so excited, he can't even go 10 steps without stopping and dropping everything and worshiping the Lord. And he looks like a lunatic. He looks crazy. And his wife, David's wife, Michael, says, you look like a fool prancing around in front of all these people. You look like an idiot. And what does the one person whom God pointed at and said, that's a man after my own heart. What did that man say? He kind of goes out like this. Cupcake, if you think this is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. Like if you knew what life was like without his presence, you would understand why I look so foolish. Because now that he's with me, I really don't care how you take me. Look like a fool. You look like a fool. But think about it. The flesh never likes to look foolish. So what do we do? We embrace dignity. We dress dignified. We put on a show. Why? Because we're all about appearance. Right? Rather than embrace the foolish. Do you understand how important it is to come to the place where you stop worrying about what others think? Here's, every once in a while I have somebody say to me, I don't care what you think about me. Okay, that, that's not wisdom, all right? That's an attitude. I'm not telling you, you need to get to a place where you go, I don't care what you think about me. Okay, that's abrasive. Here's what I am saying. You need to get to the place where you can say this. It's okay, no matter what you think about me. It's okay. 
I'm going to look foolish. We cannot forget how important this is scripturally. Not acting the fool, but be, being willing to be seen as the fool. Let me show you in scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, 26, 27, and 28. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. God's just clearing his throat, going, let me remind all of you through Paul how this works. Verse 26, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Here's what Paul is saying. Hey, you weren't even that impressive before. So seeking out dignity, what's the point? You weren't impressive in the beginning. The only thing impressive about you is the God of the universe, not you. Okay, verse 27, instead, God chose things the world considers, what? Foolish. Foolish. In order to what? Shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are, what? Powerful. God chose things despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. If you don't look like an idiot, you're not doing the, the Christian life right. That's the most simple way I can say it. That's how God set it up. We're supposed to look foolish. Think about this. God was trying to prove a point that he stood above all the other gods. And so when he was looking for a nation to call his own, did he pick the largest one? No, no. In Deuteronomy, he, he makes it plain. He said, listen, you want to know why I picked you? You're the smallest and weakest. That way, everything that happens, everything you do, I'll get credit for. God set it up that way. Okay, look around. Look around. Just look around this room. You already know this, but the number one most widely regarded problem in this city is what? Homelessness, right? 8,000, roughly 8,000 people in the city of San Francisco are considered homeless. Okay, about 150 of us in this room right now. Think about this. How incredible would it be if the God of the universe picked one of the smallest churches in the city to attack the biggest problem in the city? Who, who would get the credit? Not the church. Because on paper, they're too small to be able to do anything about the city's biggest problem. Well, thank God their God is bigger than any problem. Thank God. He will get all of the credit. It's, it's a setup. It's a divine setup. Okay, listen. Every one of you, not just because you're here at this church, the fact that you're in this city, you're crazy. And you look like an idiot being here. You look like you don't belong. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, made sure to plant you here. I, I want you just to think about how crazy it is that you're here. Think about it. Think about the odds. What percentage of people actually make it in the city? We played golf last week with a guy in Scottsdale who lived out here for like 17 years. And he made this statement. He said, here's one of the things I learned. He's a real successful guy. He said, here's what I learned that the average family needs at least $300,000 to survive every year in San Francisco. I choked. I said, excuse me, what? He goes, oh, oh yeah, 300 grand. 
He goes, the numbers say people are leaving the city in droves, in droves, simply because they can't afford it. Okay, the very fact that you're finding a way to tough it out in this city is bringing God a measure of glory that sometimes you may minimize. You're still here. You're still here. Everybody else is leaving and you're still here. At what point do the people watching you looking going, they're not as qualified as some of these people who are leaving. Yeah, yeah, this isn't about qualifications. This is about glory. God's setting it up for those who seem unqualified to bring in more glory. It's simple math. It's simple math. Go through from beginning to end the scriptures. And what do you see? Divine setup after divine setup where the odds are stacked against some no-name person who by the end of their life was famous. Why? Because God did miraculous things in their lifetime. Two of the biggest prerequisites to see God do miraculous things is a willingness to be crazy and a willingness to look like a fool. And then God shows up. Think about it. What's the posture of a crazy fool? It isn't this. That's a prancing peacock walking in pride. What's the posture? What's the posture of a crazy fool? I'll show you. Incidentally, what's the posture of a wise person when the king walks into the room? the same posture. You realize what you're doing? You're just making way. You're John the Baptist. You're just making way for the king to walk in. That's it. But you're literally crazy. Think about this. For those of you who set up and tear down every week and have for the last two years, y'all are crazy. You've lost your mind, but have you ever once stepped back to think about how God is taking your actions, how he's viewing them. Think about this, because we don't. We just do it and it's annoying and we don't think about how the God of the universe is peering over the balcony of heaven going, this church had no home. But rather than wait for a home, a bunch of crazy people got together and said, you know what we'll do? We'll find a hole. Better yet, we'll find a stinky, smelly, Manger. Isn't it interesting that when the Son of God came to this earth in the form of a man, he wasn't born in the palace. He was born off, off the beaten path in a cave, a stinky, smelly cave. And in doing so, here's what he was saying. This is not about what this place looks like. This is about that I am in this place. The God of the universe looked at Moses in the midst of a burning bush and he said, hey buddy, it'd be a wise idea for you to take your flip flops off because I'm in this place. And any ground where I'm standing is no longer normal, it's supernatural. I don't care if it's a middle school that takes three hours to set up. What do you think when, when there was no room in the inn? How do you think the God of the universe 
was taking view of the actions of the people who realized the baby that was about to be born and were frantically trying to put lipstick on a pig and make that cave look as beautiful as possible because the king of kings was about to be born there. I wonder if God didn't peer over the balcony of heaven and go, oh my word, these people are crazy. They're crazy. They're preparing a place for me. Now watch me show off. Watch how I respond to your preparation. Let me go one step further. Have you ever stepped back to think about how God views when you tithe in this city? This city being widely regarded as one of the two most expensive cities to live in the United States. Tithing is a problem all over the country. Stats say that less than 30% of the people who go to church every week tithe. But think about this. Have you ever stepped back to think about how the God of the universe sees you tithing every time you tithe in the city of San Francisco? When everybody else is leaving because there's not enough money, not only are you not leaving, you're making it harder financially to stay. You've lost your mind. How does God view that? You could not convince me of any other way that God could see that obedient act, that sacrificial act, than looking at you every time you do it and going, are you serious? Are you serious? You, you really want me to do something in your life and in this city? And you're willing to make it a little bit harder on you in order to do it? What does he say? Okay, you test me on this. Now watch my response. Watch me. See if I don't rip open the windows of heaven. And that's not just a financial thing. Listen, money is the currency of the earth. But when this earth goes to pot and we spend eternity in heaven, people are the currency of heaven, not pennies. People, not pennies. So what does that mean? God has a sense of sarcasm that I think we often overlook. The streets are paved with gold. They're paved with gold. He's like, listen, I do not need your money. There's so much of it around me that I just, I come up with way, here, just asphalt. Gold is asphalt. <laughs> listen, on the earth, the world revolves around money. But in the kingdom, it revolves around the king. You're crazy. Every time. You t think about this. Jason was telling us last night, the first legacy offering was $5,000 in the first year. And the second one, is this public? Yeah, $45,000. Okay, you're idiots. <laughs> you're crazy. You, you, do you realize that? A bunch of crazy people in a room going, this is all about you. What I'm doing doesn't make sense. And he goes, that's right. That's right. On paper, it doesn't make sense. But by the end of the story, it will make sense to everybody in your life. Everybody. He's establishing. All he's doing with you is playing divine chess. And your responsibility is to obey. To do everything he asks you to do. Here's point number three. Make sure you realize what you're doing. Make sure you realize what you're doing. Here's the problem in a situation like where you find yourselves. We get so close to something, we can't even actually see that which we are doing. 
So we think we're just coming and setting up, tearing down, having worship, having a service. It's so much bigger than that. And I don't know if you know this, but God has a competitive side, a very competitive side. Now, I'm a competitive person, okay? And it's not very pretty when I get competitive. My wife, she played two sports in college. She is very competitive. On our honeymoon, we went on a cruise. And this was before cruising got popular and they made them all like, you know, a city on a ship. And this was like, this cruise ship was kind of laid out like a 70s living room, okay? Scratchy couches, it was hideous. We're in this small room and my wife, she real competitive, she starts pushing my buttons, okay? She grabs a pillow off the bed and she just hits me in the head with it. We've been married 24 hours. She's like, come on, what are you going to do? I said, ha, 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 funny. Whap. She hits me again. Ha, 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 whap. She keeps hitting me. I said, what are you going to do? I said, woman, don't push that button. Trust me, don't push that button. Instead of grabbing the soft pillow on the bed that she grabbed, I grabbed the scratchy 70s pillow off the couch. And I wound up like I was an all-star pitcher. And just went, whap, right in her face. The zipper on the pillow caught my wife flush on the lip. And when it did, her lip exploded with blood. We've been married 24 hours. And all I remember saying out loud in that moment was, please don't tell your dad. And I just started apologizing profusely. I'm so sorry. You pushed the button. Don't push the red button. You were, you were, come on, don't, I don't want to do this again. Okay, I'm competitive. But you got to understand something. I get that from my dad. Not my earthly dad. My heavenly dad. Let me show you one of my favorite verses in the Bible, in the book of Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 13. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ. Good news, by the way. He made you alive with Christ where he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now listen to verse 15. In this way. In other words, it wasn't just about making sure you got to heaven. That's what this in this way phrase means. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The God of the universe was intentionally trying to shame the devil at the cross that day. It wasn't just about getting you into heaven. It was about humiliating his enemy. Okay, think about this. What you're doing when you come and you greet at the door, you're not just serving somebody. Okay, that's the good side. Every time you serve, you are stomping on the enemy's throat. When we think about doing something good, it can get overwhelming. But when you play to your competitive side, it gets easy to do hard things. When I was in college playing basketball, I, I did not like leg day. You can tell I have bird legs, all right? I hated leg day. But when I got to college, I started working on my legs for the first time. Why? Because a button got pushed and a coach got in my face and said, listen, you're going to be slow and you're not going to be able to jump until you get stronger legs. 
and every opponent you come against is gonna run faster than you and jump higher than you until you strengthen your legs. And I went, you won't say that twice. I got you. I'm gonna shove it in your face. These bird legs are about to become ape legs. (laughs) Why? He was playing to my competitive side. Okay, listen, when you're planting a church, it's one of the hardest things to do in the kingdom of God. And there are some days, and you all know this, there are some days it's hard to get yourself to do what you know needs to be done. The reason is because we're just thinking about the positive. If we would play to our competitive side and go, hmm, even when I don't feel like doing it, it's actually more a shove it in the face moment to the enemy than when I'm in the mood to do it. Okay, I want to read you one verse, and I want you to see this, and I want to give you the original language. Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan. Here's God's strategy. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Okay, two words I want to point out. Bruise and shortly. The word bruise in the Greek means, when we think about bruise, we just think about, you know, a little discoloration. That's not what this word means. It means to punish, to harm in such a way that what is being punished or harmed is no longer even recognizable. Here's the word that we would probably use in our English language, pulverize. And the God of the universe will pulverize Satan under your feet shortly. Okay, this word shortly is connected to something that happened in the Roman culture when they were about to go to war. The soldiers would come down the streets of the city they were about to go to war with, and they would march. They were making a declaration. Nothing is going to get in our way. We will not be stopped. Here we are. Deal with us. Okay, I want you to think about this. The next time you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like doing what God's called you to do, one of the smartest things you can do. Walk. Because the God of the universe is about to pulverize Satan beneath your feet shortly. Here's what I believe about where your church is right now. The end of this 21-day time of prayer, I believe, is the end of season number one and the beginning of season number two. Okay? I'm not just trying to encourage you. I'm just trying to let you know. It's a new season. It's a new season. You made it through the hardest part of church planning. Why? Because you're crazy and God is God. Those are the only two reasons you made it. You're crazy and God is God. Okay, listen, doing what you're doing is not just an admirable thing. Oh, it's great they're building a church, that's great. It's an intensely competitive, supernatural thing. You are stealing ground that the enemy has been calling his for a very long time. Okay, listen, in season number one, here's the goal of season number one, survive. This is what I felt like the Lord gave me. Season number one, the one word that describes season number one, just survive, just survive. But let me tell you, 
what I believe the word is for season number two for this church. Establish. Establish. Settle in, move in, and step on his neck by planting your flag in the city. This isn't about surviving anymore. It's not about making it. It's about moving in and setting up shop for the kingdom of God. Okay, you made it through the hard part. It's never going to be harder than that. Okay, that was uphill. Season two is gonna feel like downhill compared to season number one. Doesn't mean it's gonna always be easy, but it simply means it's a new day and it's time to establish. It's time to settle in and shove it in his face. This belongs to the Lord. This city belongs to the Lord. Every street in this city belongs to the Lord. The God who sits above the circle of the earth and the people seem like grasshoppers to him. This is his town. And you're here not because you like this city, whether you understand that or not. You're here because the God of the universe handpicked you and said, I need you to do what I want to do. That brings us to the last point, and this is probably the most important point of the message. Point number four, make sure you get what you need. Make sure you get what you need. Psalm 139, verse 13, David makes a brilliant statement. He says, God, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. You know what David is saying to God? He's saying, God, thanks for making me so high maintenance. And then he, then he doubles down. And he says, your workmanship, by the way, is marvelous. He's talking about himself. He says, God, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship, by the way, spectacular. Like, well done by you. How well I know it, David says. Okay. I know you know this, but I think a lot of us forget this. God created you to be very high maintenance. You know, at the same time she elbowed, her husband was like, mm-hmm, see, I, I've been trying to tell you all these years. He made me this way. Yes, he did. And that's what David said to God. He said, your workmanship is unbelievable. And what workmanship was he talking about? The complexity that was him. Okay, so what does this mean for you? If you're high maintenance, then the fuel God created you to run on is highly expensive. Think about this. Think about this, okay? Because I know that in the church, we, we make high-maintenance people look bad, you know? Oh, they're high-maintenance. Jesus wasn't high-maintenance. Yes, he was. Well, Preston, prove that to me in Scripture. I can, very simply. He was constantly getting away to be with the Father to get the fuel he needed to yeah. do what God made him to do. Jesus was high-maintenance in a good way. So are you. Now, think about this, okay? Let's just let's get real for a moment. When you have to fill up your car with gas, when it's on empty, when was the last time you looked at that gauge and went, you gotta be kidding me. What's your problem? Like, what are you, you're, you're always on empty. Like, do you not understand? You're sucking the life out of me. You're costing me a fortune. Do you pull up to a gas pump and start cursing your car every time it's on empty? No, you don't. Then why do you do that to yourself? Why, when you're running on E, do you make yourself feel so bad about it? 
What's your problem? Come on, get it together. Let's go. Why are you so weak? Incidentally, that is not the voice of your creator talking. That's the voice of your enemy talking. Because he knows if you get the fuel you were created to need, you'll be his worst nightmare. Think about this. Adam and Eve fall. They go hide. And I want to show you a question that God asks them. And it's going to surprise you. Some of you know this, Genesis 3, verse 8. When Adam and Eve heard the sound of God strolling in the garden, in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden. They hid from God. God called to the man. Here's the question. Where are you? Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. Okay, I want you to think about this. True or false? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. True, right? Okay, true or false? God is all-knowing, omniscient. True, he knows everything, right? So the God who knows everything and is everywhere asked this question to Adam and Eve. Hey, I can't find you. Where are you? No. Listen, one of the most important questions God will ever ask you in your quiet time is, hey, where are you? Where are you right now? Here's another way to say it. What do you need? The God of the universe looked at you and said, every seven days, I created you to run on something called a Sabbath. And when you don't get it, you're in trouble. Not because I'm mad at you, but because you're running on empty. Why? Because I created you to need this every seven days. Okay, think about this. What else do you need every seven days? Break down your entire life into six major areas. The spiritual part of your life, the physical part of your life, the emotional, the relational, the financial, the professional, six major areas of your life. You have needs in every one of those areas. And this phrase might shock you. When you're not getting what God created you to need, God cannot get what he wants. He picked you. So why, when we go to God and say, God, I really need this, why are we so embarrassed? He picked you for this calling. He knows what you need. One of the worst things you can do is lay your life down for the cause of Christ, but be dying on the inside because you're not getting what you need. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm on empty. I'm running on fumes. Do you really think your heavenly father do you really think, I'm looking right at you, do you really think that the God of the universe would get mad when you just take a moment alone with him and say, I'm limping. God, I, I need and fill in the blanks. You know what a good daddy does? You know what Jesus said? He said, you being a good mother and father, that's great, but how much better is your heavenly father at being a daddy. He looks at his little girl and he says, what do you need? I'll give you everything you need. What do you need? Just tell me. What do you need? You're laying your life down for me. You're doing things I couldn't get anybody else to do in this city. What do you need from me? What do you need? Can you imagine that the 
of the universe has come into this room today. And he's not in this moment asking you to do something. He's asking you, what do you need? And when you're getting what you need, here's what you need to understand. It benefits everybody in your life. But when you're not getting what you need, it's hell for the rest of us. Can I just tell you, some of you are believing the lie, I'm too needed to be needy. And you need to humble yourself before the God of the universe and say, I'm in need. God help me. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. The God of the universe is so divinely obsessed with you that out of all the places he could be right now, he made sure he was here. And in this moment, he's asking one simple question. What do you need? Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And you didn't even know. You thought what God wanted out of you was a bunch of tasks and all this stuff. You didn't know that part of the beginning of the conversation was God saying, hey, what do you need? That conversation starts with Jesus. I need Jesus. But then I have a lot of other needs too. What do you need? Just take a moment. Like the little boy, the little girl that you are, because no matter how old you are, we're all just seven-year-old little boys and little girls on the inside. Take a moment, crawl into his lap, get specific with your heavenly father. Tell him what you need. Just tell him right now, between you and him, just tell him. Well, pressing my list is kind of long. Yeah, it's because your calling is kind of big. Thoroughbreds need more fuel. Don't beat yourself up. God made you needy. And his workmanship is marvelous. Just tell him right now, what do you need? God, I need, God, I need. Just tell him. greatest revelations in the Christian life is realizing that while you're here for God, God is here for you. What is far more important than you being here in this place for God to serve, to build, to bless, is that God is here for you. Holy Spirit, I pray right now for every person here. Would you touch each of their hearts? Would you encourage them deep in their souls? Jehovah Jireh, our provider, he doesn't just provide money. He provides for all of our needs. God, I pray that you would prove a point in the life of every person in this room that as they have the boldness to say, God, I need this. I need a break. I need some help. I need some rest. Whatever it is they ask you for, God, I pray you'd prove a point in this season of their lives. Would you render them speechless with your response? Open up the windows of heaven and bless them beyond anything they think possible. Thank you. 
God, for being the perfect father that you are. We, your children, celebrate your goodness, your faithfulness. And Lord, I pray over this church. I pray at the beginning of season number two. I pray for a divine strength and conviction to come upon every person who calls this home. I pray every morning they wake up. Boldness. Boldness would fill them up. That they'd be driven to step on the neck of your enemy and theirs. God, I pray that you would break down strongholds through this church, in this city, in this neighborhood. God, I pray that you would do things they'll never be able to take credit for. Use them to humiliate your enemy. Let it be so. In Christ's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thanks for letting me be here this weekend. Thanks for listening. Join us each week here on the podcast or live in San Francisco. Keep up with life at Sozo by following at Sozo Church SF on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a great day.